Laura Ellsworth, a litigator from the Pittsburgh office of the international law firm of Jones Day, recently sat down with me to talk about growing up in a home with parents who were dedicated to serving others, what she sees as our Commonwealth's greatest and biggest challenges and how to tackle them, and why she thinks she should be the next governor of Pennsylvania. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs and uh, shifting from beers to coffee and joining me uh, with the, for this episode is Laura Ellsworth. And uh, we are having coffee at Little Lamps in Harrisburg on the corner of uh, 2nd and State Street. The Laura, welcome to Brews and Views. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, enjoying a good cup of coffee uh, on a cold, cold day. Uh, uh, so it's fitting. Well, Laura, uh, I appreciate your taking time. You've announced that you are running for governor. Uh, you haven't run for anything before, correct? Correct. Let's start off just telling about how you grew up. Where'd you grow up? Um, and then we'll get into why you uh, want to run across this entire Commonwealth. Great. All right. Well, my uh, my story starts with my dad. So my grandfather was from Kingston, Pennsylvania, out in the eastern part of the state. And he was reportedly the first guy with a Model T in the Wyoming Valley out there because he was a doctor uh-huh. and he would use the car to go around and see his parents, his patients and so forth in, in eastern Pennsylvania. So my dad was born out there, Gershom Place in Kingston, PA, and grew up and ultimately moved to New York City to make his career. Okay. And he became, I'm very proud of him, so I'll say this, he became, um, after serving in the Air Force, both my parents served in the Air Force, Mm -hmm. so my dad was a doctor, my mom was a nurse, Uh, they met and ended up in New York, and my dad ultimately became probably the foremost expert in the world in one particular disease, which is called retinoblastoma. It's a tumor of the retina, occurs in infants, and was almost always fatal when he first encountered it. And he decided that he was going to um, eradicate this disease from the world. And that was going to be his life's work. And it was incredibly difficult and challenging because so many of these children didn't survive. Mm. And so what he did was he also was a doctor in New York for people like Bob Hope and Frank Sinatra. So I grew up with Uncle Bob and Uncle Frank. And what he would do is he would raise money with them. And wherever you were in the world, if you were a child with this disease, he would find a way to get you to New York. And these kids all came to New York with their families, but they had nowhere to stay. So they stayed with us at Mm -hmm. our house. Wow. And so I grew up all my life with these children and their families and watched my father take it unto himself to solve this problem for them so he could treat these children. So you were born in New York? Uh, I was. Brothers and sisters as well? Uh Uh-huh. My brother, my older brother, was also born in New York, and and we lived in New York City, and this was in the late 60s. Okay. And then um, the, the end of the story on my dad is that my mother, the nurse, said... Bob, we can't have all these people in our house all the time. And so she and my dad went out and um, arranged with their friends to raise some more money, collect furniture, 
Uh, they recruited all of us little kids one summer, and we bought a house in Harlem. We went up, we furnished it, the little kids painted it, and that became, it's called Reese House. It became the prototype for Ronald McDonald House. Oh, wow. And I tell that story at mm. some length because it was one of the first times that I watched my parents, and we are all ultimately a product of our parents, right? Right. I watched them not talk about a problem, not observe a problem, but take it upon themselves to figure out how to solve it. And so from my earliest days, that was what I watched. That was what I knew. And so that became a real part of me. Mm -hmm. um, and this was New York now in the, and northern New Jersey in the late 60s. And my mom... Um, was somebody who saw a lot of educational challenges in some of the inner city areas. And she took it upon herself to be one of the founding members of the first day nursery for kids, underprivileged kids, called the Leonard Johnson Day Nursery. And so she, again, organized the people that she knew, that she knew how to deliver. And when I was a kid, part of my job and my responsibility was to go there at 3 o'clock and help those kids, mm. help them with their homework and help them get mm. their coats on. And, but it was that idea that service is not an optional thing. Service is what you do. And if you have a good idea, you don't just talk about it. You make it real, and then you become a part of it. And so all of that teaching became really a part of who I am and I think informs how I approach all sorts of problems and really how I approach this race as well. Okay, so you, uh, you grew up in, in New York City, going to public schools, private schools there? New York and New Jersey, so we moved okay. out to New Jersey. Um, I graduated from Dwight Englewood High School in okay. northern New Jersey, exit 18E. Everybody from New Jersey, you know, navigates <laughs> by exits. And then I went to Princeton undergrad. Okay. And um, that was another really formative part because Princeton's motto is Princeton in the nation's service. And in order to graduate, not for honors or anything, but just to graduate, you have to write a series of three papers, two your junior year, one your senior year, and the only requirement is no one can have written on it before. Hmm. So I still have that stress dream, like my thesis <laughs> is due and I didn't pick my topic yet. And, um, but it was a place where you were expected to think about what you could invent that had not been invented before. And there was a, a moment, I was also a theater and dance person, and so there was one philosophy class I had. It started at 8 o'clock in the morning. I don't know what I was doing signing up for an 8 o'clock course, and, but it was at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I had been up all the night before at a tech rehearsal, and I wasn't really paying attention, and nobody else in this small preceptorship of 12 kids was paying attention either. And in the middle of the class, the professor slams his book, and we all jump. And he says to us, look, believe me, I have taught you every single thing I can see in this philosophy text. Your job is to bring something to the table I haven't seen. And if you're not prepared to do that, you can get out. <laughs> so we all looked at each other and sort of took a deep breath. And then one person after another, all 12 people in the class, made an observation about the text and about the issue we were talking about that hadn't come up before. And it was an amazing thing to watch because it made me understand two things really for the first time. Number one is that everybody, everybody has something to bring to the table because of their unique life experience, who they are, how they think, what brought them to that moment in time. Everybody has something valuable to bring that the other people didn't have. 
And the second thing is that each of us who has those unique gifts has not just an opportunity to bring them to the table, but an obligation to bring them to the table for one another. Mm -hmm. And so I have walked that out whether I'm teaching in an inner city school and asking you know, a 16-year-old kid, what do you think? Tell me about what you think about this issue. Um, whether it is working with my adversaries on a really big case, tell me what you think. Why do you think that? At what point did you decide, I want to go be a lawyer? Here your, your dad was a doctor and mom a nurse and, and uh, um, not sure how lawyers were held in this <laughs> Oh, my dad almost stroked out when he heard <laughs> I wanted to go to law school. So I had a, a professor when I was in, in college who talked about the law and the history of the law and really the power of the law to change the world, to change lives and to change... Um, the way we order ourselves. And so I thought that was really interesting. And so uh, I went to law school at the University of Pittsburgh and uh, followed a guy. So I followed a guy <laughs> who I'd known at Princeton, fell out of love with the guy, fell in love with Pittsburgh, and then never left. It was just an amazing place to be for me um, because like, the people moved me. They were so committed to one another. They were so committed to Pittsburgh. They were so committed to their fellow citizens. Now, remember, I'm coming from you know New York City, yeah, and suburban yeah. New York City, where you do not make eye contact with right. anybody no matter what, right? And all of a sudden, I walk into this wonderful Pennsylvania zone, and maybe it was returning to my Pennsylvania roots, like my Kingston mm -hmm. roots, like you mm -hmm. know the real people of Pennsylvania. But it was a, it was a, I felt like I was home, and so. One of the, the things I was privileged to do, I guess the good or the bad, when I got there, it was 1980. And you know, Pittsburgh at 1980 was absolutely dead in the water. Mm. Um, steel had collapsed, everybody was leaving, all the young people were leaving, nobody wanted to be there. And when I got out in 1983 and began to get involved in the community as people do, right, in Western Pennsylvania, one of the things I watched and one of the things I was privileged to be able to participate in was the private sector and the public sector came together and with vision and purpose and will and resolve decided to define what their future was going to be. And as you know now, if you've been to Pittsburgh yep. of late, we were just talking about this, right? It is one of the most vibrant, exciting, most livable places unbelievable trajectory and that didn't happen by accident that happened by plan and design and by the private and public sectors working together to define their destiny but over my desk there are a series of little sayings and one of them is a, a William Jennings Bryan quote um, and he said destiny is not a matter of chance it's a matter of choice and that is something that from my parents the earliest days I believe in that yeah. and that animates me and that's what I saw Pittsburgh do and that's what I was privileged to participate in and you know to go back to I think it's reflected in my in my current job with my law firm which yeah. I can which I want to ask you about yeah. so so you graduated uh, from law school uh, offered a, an opportunity to stick around in Pittsburgh? Is yeah. What happened? Yeah, so I uh, joined a law firm called Buchanan Ingersoll uh -huh. that I know you know, sure. and I was with them for a number of years. Actually, right across the street, I can see Buchanan Ingersoll <laughs> out our window as we're recording. Just a pure coincidence yes, yeah. that we did this they, No, right? it is because Buchanan Ingersoll is everywhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and then... Um, Left Buchanan and went to the, my current law firm, which is Jones Day, in the early 90s. And Jones Day um, 
really is everywhere too. Yes, it is, yes. It is one literally, of the largest. Yes. Literally, yeah. right? It is one of the largest law firms in the world. It's 2,500 lawyers, more than 2,500 lawyers now, um, in 43 offices on five continents around the world. Okay. And I was a litigator with them, so have been a litigator for almost 35 years now. And one of the things, both at Buchanan and, and at Jones Day, is they tend to handle really big, complex, bet the company kinds of cases and really hard problems that people you know, haven't seen before. And so I love solving really hard, complex, thorny problems. And I think that is what I've been trained to do. Uh, that is what I like to do. And I think there is some demonstrated ability on my part to do that. Um, and I think the other thing that was really joyful about it is I also ran for 12 years the Pittsburgh office of Jones Day. So I also think of myself as a business owner, right? I had to hire. How I many had to people? How many people in that? Uh, it, unit? it fluctuated yeah. over time, but about 75 lawyers okay. and about 150 people mm -hmm. full time. Um, clients, you know, across not just the state but across the world, who we were responsible for, and um, that perspective also put me in the civic world. So one of the things, as I described mm. before, that Pittsburgh did, I think, so brilliantly was it mobilized its private sector. And so um, whether it was chairing the Chamber of Commerce, and again, in leadership roles, right? Because mm -hmm. that, I think, is where you can really make a difference. So chairing the Chamber of Commerce, chairing the Economy League, sitting on the executive committee of the Allegheny Conference on Community and Economic Development. These are organizations that you know from Western Pennsylvania work with all of the, the business leaders in the region mm -hmm. and with state, local, and federal officials to effect change. So we worked on really difficult things like pension reform, like tax reform, infrastructure development, the locks and dam system, the water system, transportation, um, economic development and business attraction, shell cracker, all these different things. We were harnessing the collective wisdom of the business community, bringing their resources to the table, and then working with government to actually get things done. So let me go back. As you were growing up and uh, your parents uh, focus on service and taking care of others and problem solving, uh, were you politically engaged at all during these years? Uh, and, and how did, what is your, you know, how did you develop a political interest? Or in some ways, uh, when you start to tackle problems, you realize politics ends up being intertwined. Whether we like it or not, it becomes part of, uh, well, the process of trying to solve things. Yeah. So um, my parents were not politically active particularly. I mean, I was raised a Republican from when I, before I could walk, you know. Um, it was a very Republican family, and I've been a Republican all my life, um, primarily because of how I was raised, right? So in believing that government is there to serve the people and not the other way around, mm -hmm. right? I watched my parents, I watched individual citizens who were closest to the problem, who understood it best, who knew how to solve it, solve it. And they didn't wait for anybody else to do it for them. They stood on their own two feet and they took care of their own business in the way that they knew best. And so to me, what, what being a Republican means is knowing that government is a customer service business. It is there for the purpose of helping people live their lives. And so to the extent that it can get out of the way and let them do that, it ought to do that. And it is there for the purpose of making people's lives better. And I think the second thing which I learned in part from, from Jones Day is that the thousands of people 
real people that are closest to the problem are going to come up with better ideas than just two or three people at a distance <laughs> telling everybody right, else what to right, do, right? right? That's what I saw in my simplistic view is that's what I saw Democrats doing, right? Democrats were way far away. They got two or three really smart people, did a study, and then told everybody else what to do. That made no sense to me because what I was seeing is people and what I saw all through in, in everything I did in Western Pennsylvania, I saw incredibly good, talented people shoulder to shoulder doing incredible work in ways that they knew best in their communities that they knew best. And... There were things that I saw that I thought government could have done to help them do that better. Well, so as, as you uh, assess things and you say, look, there's this blend, if you will, where you bring the public and private sectors together uh, to solve these problems, because I think a lot of your involvement uh, that you've uh, been engaged with, whether it's economic development or chambers of commerce, recognize that there is a public sector role to play. Um, unfortunately, I, th I think, from my perspective, it uh, over uh, emphasizes itself, that public sector, uh, because I agree. I don't think the people at the Liquor Control Board know what's best uh, for uh, the rest of the state <laughs> when it comes to how many outlets or what uh, products we ought to have. Uh, I'm sure that, look, we get a lot of Democrats that agree with us there. Yeah, in I think that's true. That, I think you know, that's true. One that cuts across uh, party lines. But so you're, uh, while you haven't been in public office, you've certainly observed these, uh, the challenges that Pennsylvania faces. Uh, and as we were talking before we went on the recording that, you know, Pennsylvania is the sixth largest state, uh, biggest swing state in the country. And we're still the keystone state for both political and location reasons. I mean, it's, it's why, uh, you know. Uh, Amazon and that's logistics, right. absolutely. That's sure. right. Sure. Um, what would you say are the things that are holding Pennsylvania back uh, from really being a leader rather than a laggard, which is how I've described, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, while a wonderful uh, place. Uh, we have one of the highest tax burdens in the country. Uh, we have a place that we're, uh, I'd say, outforcing jobs. Uh, we're not outsourcing. It's where we're forcing people out, young people because of the job opportunities haven't been here. They've been elsewhere. So what what would you say are, here are the one, two, three, four, or 20 <laughs> things that are hindering Pennsylvania from really being a leader rather than a laggard? One thing. It one is thing. One word. Leadership. Mm-hmm. Leadership. Explain that. The state of Pennsylvania at this moment in time is virtually devoid of leadership. And the state itself has everything it needs, everything, to be not just one of the top economies and places to live for families in America, but just about anywhere else. All the pieces are there. The lack of leadership means that everything is going fallow, and that rather than harnessing this tremendous potential and this tremendous opportunity, we are instead running around with no budget, a complete budget crisis, destroying our credit rating, and we are a place now where instead of relying on a tax base that is dependent on people who build things and make things and grow things, we are ever more dependent on borrowing and people who drink and smoke and gamble and, you know, smoking pot will be the next yeah. thing. What have we become? We need to step back and say, what have we become? Well, we know we're the second largest gambling, you know, addiction country. to gambling revenues. Uh, and we continue, rather than addressing our spending problem, we just look for, quote unquote, free money. 
Right, oh. and the only thing we can do yeah. is say, do we tax or cut services? So that is a lazy person's approach to the world. We mm -hmm. need to demand more of our leadership. And I think here are some examples of places where I think there is tremendous opportunity for leadership to make a big difference. Jobs, right? I'll give you sort of the top four mm -hmm. things that we think about a lot. Jobs, education and workforce, which I see very linked, right? Um, taxes and the restoring the financial responsibility of state government. My family lives on a budget. We have one and live by it. Mm -hmm. My business had a budget. We have one and live by it. People and businesses and citizens of Pennsylvania can do it. Our government can do it and needs to do it. And I can talk about some reasons. And then the fourth is to get our opiate crisis under control. This is something that um, I've had some familiarity with for a long time. My husband, as you may know, um, was a prosecutor for, she was the assistant U.S. attorney in Western Pennsylvania for 30 years and had actually the first China White case decades ago. And so the devastating impact of abuse mm -hmm. is something that, you know, we've known well and that we have grown to know through friends of ours. Everyone has friends and people that they know who have lost children, have lost family members to this devastating, devastating scourge. And so this is something that we can and must get our arms around, and yet all we see is talk, no action on all of these issues. There's plenty of talking, but there is no action and there is certainly no leadership. And those are the things that we need to change. And well, let's let's start with the, the fourth one then, since you're on this. What uh, you know, when you say there's only talk, no action. What kind of action steps uh, do you think need to be taken? And then I want to tackle those other ones of jobs, education, and, and taxes, sure. budgeting. Yeah. Sure. So I think. Um it's a supply and demand are two aspects of where you need to look at it. So as we know, more than 70% of the deaths that result um, from opiates are not from, they start with pills. They start with pre right. prescription pills, but they don't happen because of pills. They happen because the pills were withdrawn, but the addiction continued. And so the person went to heroin and then fentanyl, right? Um, which is tremendously more powerful and unexpectedly, mm -hmm. you know, overdoses. And so those issues, so we have to interdict at the pill side when you first start. Do you know where that originally came from? No, no. So in, back in the Clinton administration um, and out of the VA, which I know something about from my day job, which we'll get back to, I'm sure. Um, but there came this idea that pain was the fifth vital sign and that doctors were going to be compensated, graded, evaluated based on their ability to control pain. Hmm. And this came out of the VA, which had its own motivation to want to control pain with drugs rather than actual treatment. Different hmm. issue, but mm -hmm. that's where it came from. Okay. So that then caught on, and so doctors began prescribing these incredibly powerful pain killers because that's how they were being told to do. Pain is the fifth vital sign. And so one of the things we need to do is we need to intersect that. So things like um, limiting the, the length of time that really strong opiates can be prescribed to some limited period of time, or at least requiring a re-upping of a prescription every few days so that the doctors are really intimately involved. I think there is an educational aspect to it. And many of these addictions begin in school with school sports and sports injuries. And so you have kids and parents 
who need to be educated, who need to be trained. And are, are you saying that these things are not happening right now and that Governor Wolf is not promoting these types of uh, reforms to reduce uh, reliance on them? So as the mother of a sports kid, yeah. right? I wasn't hearing anything from my governor now. Since he started running, there are you know PSAs that oh, go yeah. on about sure. how we want to help sure. others. Well, where have you yeah. been? Right? I'm, a, I'm opposed. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> where have you been? Where have you been? And so I think, um, I think really broad-based educational resources, and we're not talking about huge amounts of money, you know? I hear in Harrisburg, I call it the F word, right? The funding word. It's all about funding, all yeah. about funding. We can't possibly do anything without funding. Well, that's just not true. You can, right? And you can get these words out to parents, to coaches, to people who need to be alert to this issue. And I think for parents who have kids in sports, take a look in your medicine cabinet about what your kid was prescribed over mm. the last couple of years. See what's in there and ask yourself, did your governor tell you about that ahead of time? And the answer is going to be no, right? And so we need to fix that. We need to do more in terms of interdiction. So we need to help law enforcement. Um, these are primarily the fentanyl that actually kills you is actually drugs that are coming in from China, largely through the mail. There are certain technologies that are available that will help law enforcement. We've got to get those in the hands of law enforcement. We've got to focus on those pathways and cut off those pathways. A lot of these pain clinics that are, you know, at the intersection of, of two uh, interstates, right, where you can go in and say that you're in pain and you get a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. We need to go after the civil licenses, the civil licenses. Criminal things, as you know, have a higher burden of proof. Civil licenses, that's a lower burden of proof. Let's go after them and take their licenses for over-prescribing to these people. Let's go after them. Let's shut them down. Let's start somewhere. And I hear a lot of people who are in this situation say oh this is so big there are so many multifaceted sides to it I say just get started every bit you do is going to make a difference just get started on the treatment side I think there are wonderful there are now diversionary courts that rather than taking people who are addicted putting them in jail yeah. having them go through detox and then putting them back on the street where it all starts again I think these diversionary courts are good they are spreading I think we should support them and I think we should spread the use of those around the court system um, I think there's a drug called Vivitrol that you may have heard of that blocks the receptors for the high if you will I think we need more use of that in conjunction with these treatment courts so that if somebody overdoses and is brought back with Narcan. One of the things that my cop friends say to me is, I'm in the, you know, a little town in the middle of Pennsylvania, and I've got a whole bunch of petty crime and theft. I know who's doing it. It's all the addicts. Right. So I find them overdosed. I give them Narcan. They come back. They go do petty theft again. They overdose. I give them Narcan. They go do petty theft. I'm in this complete you know, feedback loop. And so the Narcan per, uh, producer is doing well. They're, they're, uh, yeah. they're doing very well, right? <laughs> well, um, and the same thing, you know, on, on some of these treatment programs. So I think that community treatment programs are terrific. If you can bring somebody into a community treatment program and keep them close to their kids, keep them maybe on their job, keep them in their homes, that's great. But do not underestimate the unbelievable power of this addiction. Um, you know, we saw it, in, you know, even way back when, if yeah. you ask any prosecutor, you ask anyone in law enforcement, people will sell their souls, they will sell their children, literally, for the money necessary to support their addiction. And there is no more horrifying fact than that. And it happens all the time. And so we can't be um, naive about how powerful this addiction is. So I am all about you know, treatment facilities that will do this. But by the second or third time, we all know it's not working. Yeah. And I also think that we should empower families to be able to get their, their loved ones into treatment. We're beginning to see some of those advances. We need to do more of that because, again, 
families know best about their own loved ones. And so those are some of the things that I would do to tackle that problem. Well, talking about addiction, and it's maybe not the best segue to it, but let's talk about the addiction to taxes and uh, higher spending. Number, the, the third one on your list, we'll work in reverse uh, uh, as you laid them out. Um, Harrisburg, uh, you know, has, uh, has as I've long said, a, a spending problem, uh, not a revenue problem. And whenever our spending far outpaces the taxpayer's ability to pay, that's when we start going down the route that we were talking about earlier of trying to find, oh, well, what's our next gambling expansion? Or how do we, uh, you know, uh, put, you know, tax cigarettes enough to where it generates revenue, but we also want people to quit. Uh, and, you know, we, we go from vice to vice uh, that uh, we're trying to tax without uh, any broad-based tax increases. Um, what, what are your thoughts on Pennsylvania's taxing, uh, its spending, its budgeting? Uh, how are we doing on that front? Now that I've just, you know, characterized it as really bad, how can you disagree with me, right? It's really <laughs> bad. It's, um, it's actually a disgrace. I mean, it is a complete disgrace, and it's completely unnecessary. Um, the idea that anyone would uh, not sign a budget for three years, yeah. just never sign one. Um, the fundamental thing for anybody who runs a business of any kind, and face it, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is a business. Anyone who runs a business knows that the budget is the most fundamental thing that you need to get done. And this governor has never signed a complete budget. Well, it's it's leadership one way or another, right? Correct. It's either signing it or a line item vetoing or exactly. vetoing. Uh, but to just kind of what I say, the, the Pontius Pilate approach of, you know, I've got nothing to do with it. Right. Um, it was somebody else's yeah, fault. Finger right. pointing. Oh, they, they, yeah. they, they. Enough finger pointing, yeah. right? The fact of the matter is the people of Pennsylvania, we who have budgets in our own families, right, and in our own businesses, we do it. We do it. Right. It can be done. And don't tell me, don't insult my intelligence by telling me you can't do it. We all know you can do it, right? And so I think the other, you know, one of the other things I think people learn by this is you don't send over a... A budget without a way to raise the money for it because that is just a pathway to disaster and I think we well it's also that. unconstitutional it's unconstitutional <laughs> I agree with you and thank you for the lawsuit yes, uh, yes. I think that was smart um, so <laughs> which by the way was funny because as we were coming in here uh, Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale <laughs> who I just uh, had on the, the program of course a friend yet uh, I'm suing him uh, because we want to stop these uh, bad budgeting practice practices thankfully he agrees we need better guardrails but um, it's kind of where somebody better do something well uh, I filed a lawsuit against him to help uh, do something about it. But since when does a private citizen have to file yeah. a lawsuit against their government to get them to do a budget? It's yeah. just absolute lack of leadership. And yeah. that's from the top, right? That is from the person who is the chief executive and the buck stops there. And this finger pointing and this, oh, it was somebody else, or I'm just going to let this happen and claim credit for it later. Everything that has happened on his watch, he has let happen, and now he's out there claiming credit for it. And that's just completely unacceptable in terms of leadership, and it is no way to lead a state. And I think we are in a problem now where we're, we should be well into the next budget yeah. phase, yeah. right? And so part of the other discipline that has been lacking up there is the ability to get it done on a time schedule that by the time we're supposed to have a balanced budget, we have a plan in place so that we can get to a balanced budget on time. There is no thought up there about what those dates are and getting them on the calendar and get in here and we're going to sit down and we're going to look face to face. That's the kind of discipline that is necessary to, to get this done. And I think we also need... Um, better ideas 
We need more creative ideas about how we are going to tackle some of the problems that we face that people can get behind, right? And they can understand what the plan is and they can plan Are there some things that you say, here's what I would have done in this, the latest uh, situation, right? Uh, that uh, while the governor and the General Assembly agreed to spend $600 million more uh, than what they knew they were going to bring in, which was uh, already $800 million year over year expected new revenue. So it was, you know, $1.4 billion increase in spending. Of course, without the money to pay for it uh, when it was passed, that's why we're litigating uh, over this. Uh, but what would you have done? How would you have handled that? Uh, would you have said, well, let's not spend more than what we've got? Because that would have been the easy thing. Of course, Governor Wolf wants to spend more and more every year. Right. Uh, or what, what approach would you have taken? Would you have, been, would you have said, nope, we need to cut these areas of government? These are superfluous spending areas or areas that we could do without government should. How would you approach, uh, have approached that? We all knew and they knew coming into this budget cycle that our credit rating was about to be downgraded because we did not have sufficient processes in place to get an on-time budget. That's simple. Knowing that, they walked into this without any kind of a budget with this weirdly split first time ever, you know, spending and raising. They walked into that. Then they got us the credit downgrade that everybody knew was coming. Mm -hmm. And after money was more expensive, then they decide to what? Borrow more than a billion dollars. So the first thing I would have done was not allow that to happen, right? I would have looked at what was absolutely apparent to everyone, which is our credit score, just like our family's credit score, right? Our family's credit score is important to us because it impacts the cost of us running our families. The same thing is true at the state. And they didn't care the slightest a bit about that while we have to care about it for ourselves, and that's wrong. The other thing well, I it's what do, happens when you're spending other people's money. You're correct. not as uh, concerned about the cost of borrowing. Correct. But what we need in terms of leadership is we need somebody in Harrisburg who cares um, as much here as they do in their own homes, right? That's why we don't need a politician. We don't need any more politicians whose job is to figure out how to get their next job. And so they are going to be more interested in what do I do here that will keep everybody happy and so I get elected again? And if one more politician in Harrisburg says to me, Laura, if you give a politician the choice between doing something and nothing, a politician will do nothing every time because you can't get unelected for doing nothing. Well, and this is where I think Tom Wolf would say, I agree with you, Laura, right? I mean, he was not a politician. his first time he ever ran for office. Uh, why is it that you think that he isn't getting the job done? Because, well, look, he ran businesses. He had, he probably has a very similar resume to yours, right? Just with a lot of York instead of Pittsburgh uh, uh, peppered through it. But what's the, what's the difference between you and Tom Wolf? I don't know where to begin to answer that question, <laughs> but I'll try and answer it directly. So, um, number one, he came in and said, "I'm a business person. I can run." an operation, right? 
He's a businessman who told people what to do. They did what he told them to do, and that's how he ran his business operation. You can't bring that mindset to Harrisburg. It doesn't work, right? right? In my life, the people I had to, quote, manage, and I use that term with air quotes, right, were lawyers. Lawyers have their own egos. They have their own power base. They have their own, right? It takes a certain art form to lead people like that. Other people who I led were my clients. Sometimes I had to give my clients advice that they didn't want to hear. And these are very, very senior, the most senior business person and the most gigantic companies in the world there is a certain way that you need to lead those people forward and it is not just telling people what to do and expecting that they'll do it another thing about me is in fourth grade so I'll go backwards I'll tell you a fourth grade story everybody got to be class president in fourth grade for a day so you're class president for a day so I get to be class president I completely lose track of the class it's crazy there's airplanes going it's all crazy and so because I couldn't get control over it I sort of put on this, I don't care, go ahead, fine, do what you want, just be that way, see if I care, right? And then the teacher comes in and says, what the heck is going on in here, right? (laughs) I learned in fourth grade that leadership is not, well, just do what you want then, I don't care, it wasn't me, Mm -hmm. right? That's a fourth grade mentality. That is not a governor's mentality. Governors take the bull by the horns. You don't have to be mean about it. And in fact, if you bring good ideas to the table that people can get excited about, they'll want to work with you and they'll want to do things. But when you're asking them to play whack-a-mole and solve all these huge ideas at the 11th hour in the middle of the night in a 900-page bill that they haven't read and don't understand, that is no way to get people excited about doing anything. That is no form of leadership at all. And we can't do business like that anymore. Well, you brought up fourth grade. So that goes to your number two point. Again, we're working backwards here on education. Uh, And I know that you served on uh, the PASHI uh, board uh, for a bit. And so had some experience at the higher ed level. Of course, the Commonwealth's uh, most uh, significant involvement is at the K through 12 level. Uh, What's your assessment of, of education Uh, in Pennsylvania, and what are your ideas for ways that we can improve it? Um, It's not just my opinion. On most of the the major measures of education, Pennsylvania is toward the bottom of the list. And I think in too many places we have equated, and I think this government equates um, money with success, money Mm -hmm. with progress. More dollars equals better education, and that's just not the case. In some cases, I think throwing money at a problem, in fact, creates more problems. So, for example, you know, throwing uh, more money at a situation causes people to spend more money, right? Right. So I think um, while I believe in our university system and in our education system, I think it is a driver of workforce. I think it is a driver of of innovation that is really important to our overall economy and jobs economy. Um, I also think that the idea of reducing tuition is important demanding and rewarding at budget time those institutions that were able to reduce tuition, not increase tuition, it should at least be a factor that we should look at. And in any organization I've ever run, you can always find more economies of scale if you just look. And so I think incentive programs and funding incentive programs that allow people to be rewarded for savings, for reducing costs, for reducing the burden on families and students, those are things that should be built into the process. And right now they're not. It's just throwing more money at it. I think at the K through 12 level, and I will say pre-K too, I think Mm -hmm. pre-K is critically important. Um, I am a person who believes in choice. And I believe in choice because children are different. 
not all children thrive in a huge environment. Some children thrive in a, in a faith-based environment that is values-laden. Some children thrive in an arts setting or a tech setting or a sports setting. All children thrive in different kinds of settings. And so we, who are there, the education system is there to serve children. It's not there to serve anybody else but the children. And so... Well, I thought it was there for the adults employed in the system. Uh, that, that's what the PSEA around the corner here says. Uh, it, <laughs> leadership should be clear that it is there for the children and yeah, their futures. Right. And I also believe that I parents, think that's what the taxpayers expect, right? They, they right. think we, we should be funding kids, not systems, not institutions, but the education of children. Exactly right, yeah. exactly right. And I think that parents know better what's best for their kids. So I would like to see a system where every parent has the same choice that I have for myself of different schools that are good for that child. So you support uh, charter schools, uh, private school vouchers, or what, 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 what other forms of of choice are you in favor of? I do. I think um, savings accounts are a good okay. idea. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the cyber schools are good. Now, not all of these schools, right, the multiplicity of schools in a completely uncontrolled environment is not necessarily a good thing, right, because people will flood to that area and the children will not be getting good quality education. Um, so I think you have to be thoughtful about how you do um, a system of accreditation and certification. One idea that I have there is, again, don't reinvent the wheel. We have wonderful schools of education that are based in our university system, in our, in our community college system, in the PASHI system of states, high, state system of higher education. These institutions are distributed geographically across the state. They are proximate to just about every school system, if you think about it smartly. And just put an accreditation system there among the experts who already know about education, already know about K through 12, because they're training people in it. Um, I think there are a lot of ways that you could build in in a system there. I also think that we all get better from competition. I do. Mm -hmm. And I think if schools have to compete against each other, they're going to offer better opportunities for the kids in those schools. Right Now, you cannot allow what has happened, which is you don't address the system in any coherent way. You just balkanize it and pull money willy-nilly without any control or planning or thought out of the public schools, right? That's not the right to do it, the way to do it either. And so what I think we need, and, and I call it Initiative 2020, so an education initiative 2020 to bring together a group of experts to take a whole clean look, sort of as was done, you know, with transportation a number of years ago, statewide at the entire state, let's look at this issue. And there are such smart people across the state that are looking and thinking hard about these issues in the private sector that are investing huge amounts of time and effort and thought and talent in thinking about these issues. I would bring all those people together under the imprimatur of the governor, right, to actually deliver recommendations for the educational system writ large in terms of funding, in terms of structure, in terms of approvals and accreditation in six months. That could be done because of the work that's already out there if the governor showed leadership, brought that group together, and put that deadline on them for those recommendations, that could happen very promptly. And so I would do that. Another thing that I would do, so let me ask you this. Can you identify the actress who won the Academy Award for Best Actress five years ago? No. I couldn't tell you that um, last year or last night. <laughs> so tell me the name of your favorite teacher in high school. Uh, I'd say Mr. Black. Okay, see That's what I'm right. saying, right? Yep. So the teachers are in many ways the most influential people in our lives forever. Mm -hmm. Forever. Well, that's why I became a teacher. No way, yes. really? Yes, oh yeah, that was my first career uh, because of the influence that a teacher and a coach 
which I then went on to do, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Proves your point. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I think that those people, I was just talking to a teacher the other day, a very young teacher. She's just starting out in, in school, in high school out in Altoona. And she was telling me this story about how she's getting her students to think critically. And so she'll play a rap song and she'll say, what do you think of, of that thesis about you know, social policy? And they're saying, well, it's a rap song. What are you talking about? And, but to get them to think about books, right? She mm -hmm. was, they were reading of Mice and Men, and she was talking about special education and the kids in this school and what does that mean and tell me what this means to you and what does this book mean? And the, the things that she was bringing out of her students to get them to think critically about the world around them based on this great literature that they're reading or even popular culture, that ability to think critically to say what you think, that lesson I learned at Princeton, right? That the value that we bring to our society is our ability to think critically and bring our own thoughts to the table. She's teaching these kids. I mean, it was amazing. And so we have incredible teachers in our schools, and I think too many of them are distracted from the teaching by discipline issues yeah. and by distractions and by administrative things and too much test taking that doesn't matter. And so I think we need to enable our teachers to teach and let's forget all the you know political labels, but allow them to teach and do what they what they love. Well, I've to said do. while choice and competition is great for the consumers of education, that being the kids and the and the parents, it's also good for the providers exactly of it, for right. teachers. I I've long said that uh, teachers would benefit from choice and competition just as much, particularly those high performing teachers. Uh, they will actually get compensated what they're worth, uh, rather than some rigid uh, pay scale that's irrespective of the value that you bring into the classroom. Exactly. And that's, uh, to me, it's how we get a more robust education system that serves more needs uh, than we're currently doing today. I think that's exactly right. And another, as a, an example of another failure of leadership, one thing that the governor didn't sign off on recently yeah. was the best part oh, yes. of the bill that was that's sent right. to him, right? Which was a system where teachers, you know, come back from furlough based on, how, you know, how good of a teacher they that's are. Right. Performance, right? As opposed to just Imagine seniority. That. Right. And so, and I will say <laughs> this. I mean, that's not how Jones Day just, if you've been here longer, you come back. Uh, it's yeah. actually, yeah. you have to demonstrate the value the best that's person right for the kid right? that's right but i will say this there are a lot of teachers i know who love that right they want to be surrounded yep. by great teachers they want the kids who come into their class to have had a great teacher last year so to me this isn't a you know teachers versus parents or right. you know any of that this is about people who love our children and want them to thrive there are certain things that we know as parents it's not rocket science what is missing is the leadership to simply be able to deliver what we all know our kids need. And you know, one other thing that I learned from my, my workforce training, you know, some, some testings that I would do, um, I would do uh, reading proficiency by third grade, and I would include within that um, computer proficiency by third grade because so much of the learning now is done by computer sure. and keyboard. I think that's critically important, and the reason I say that is one of the other places where I worked was I was the vice chair of the um, Workforce Investment Board, which does all the workforce investment um, training both for adults and for kids and I chaired the kids program we saw as much as 30% of the kids who came into some of our workforce training programs who were 18 and 19 years old graduates of the public schools and they couldn't read mm. they couldn't read yeah. and they had gotten all the way through the public school right. system and they couldn't read so I think we need to be really disciplined about third grade reading I would love to see us bring in one of the things that that we do as part of my national work for my law firm now 
is we bring the business community into schools across the country. So through a program called Citizen Schools out of Boston, we'll go in and we'll do a semester-long mock trial program where we have the kids you know, do direct and cross-examination and stand up in a real courtroom with real judges and examine witnesses and make an opening argument, closing argument. Those are things that the, the regular school system can't do because they don't have the expertise to do it, they don't have the resources to do it, but the private sector does. And if we can harness and mobilize different people in the, in the private sector to get involved in, actively involved in, our K through 12 schools, I think that would be awesome. Another way to do it that you'll think is a crazy idea, but I'll tell you anyway, is pre-K and pre-K funding. I was just up over the past week and I was at a Penn State game, which is like a total happening, right? Yeah. I think it would be awesome to have something like the Governor's Cup. I would call it the Governor's Cup. And I would have uh, Pitt and Penn State play a game with all the proceeds to go to pick it, education, pre-K education. Let's harness all of this great talent and energy. These the states are funding these schools anyway, right? right? We right. might as well have a conversation with them about <laughs> what they could do. Um, but again, it would it could be a win-win for everybody. But nobody is thinking like that, yeah. right? Yeah. So those are some of the and things that. Well, and creativity is what it's going to take for your last one of jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, uh, even for government to operate, we have to have uh, good jobs, growing jobs, well-paying jobs, because government has no money of its own. So uh, no matter what its grand or great ideas, uh, that uh, if we aren't growing an economy. Um, our state is dying and ultimately government fails as a result. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think needs to be done on that front to make Pennsylvania, again, a leader rather than a laggard? Uh, I think you need to put a real, genuine, sophisticated business person in the governor's chair. And I know he took that chair saying that he was a business person and that he knew how to run things. Apparently not. Yeah. All right? so well, I it's a little easier to... when you're, you inherit something rather than having to build it from the ground up or grow it in a way... Uh, I, th I think that there's a difference between being an entrepreneur and a business person uh, because that there are distinctives that are important. And I think we really need more of that entrepreneur uh, that's outside the box thinking sometimes on these uh, big problems. A hundred percent. So the majority of business growth, as you know, is in small business that's in right. the small business sector. And, you know, I have been across Pennsylvania even before we announced I spent months going across Pennsylvania and talking to hundreds and hundreds of people. And you look at... You know, you see some places where you have like Beaver County and, and Westmoreland County that have had growth and business opportunities. And it's not just those businesses, those big businesses that are growing, but it's all the mom and pop coffee shops and the suppliers and the That's fabricating right. shops and the, and the you know, people who, who go in and, and build their houses and construction people. I mean, it's all of the community benefits when businesses thrive. At the same time, I've been to other communities where they say to me, we used to have 10 manufacturing sites here and they all left. They all got driven out of business. So there are really, there are two major things that I would do. Number one, I think we need what I call the map. The governor ought to have on the wall a map, visual, I'm a, I'm a litigator, right? So mm -hmm. a, visual, a demonstrative exhibit ought to have a map of what Pennsylvania is going to look like 15 years from now. And on that map ought to be, I think, energy resources because it is, I think, one of the greatest um, drivers of economic wealth for a generation in this state. I think it ought to have storage and distribution lines so that we can get that to people in Pennsylvania who want to reduce their cost of heating and cooling, right? Um, we ought to get it to the manufacturers. I don't think it's quaint 
to make things and build things and create things. I think that's exactly what we should be doing. And energy is the number one factor in energy and manufacturing costs, right? Well, and it's and right on know. top of us. Yeah, and we know that uh, without that, look, just, just look at what's happening in Puerto Rico, right? Exactly. The lack of energy, lack of power, you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it is a core uh, feature of any economy, right? I mean, even around the world, third world countries, they have to have reliable energy sources in order to grow their economy. So we have that tremendous opportunity right here in Pennsylvania. And there's a lot of people who want to kill it, and yeah. especially the guy sitting in the governor's office exactly right Exactly right. So I, I digress and then I'll come back to this. But, you know, I have a friend who's in the oil and gas business, a partner of mine. And he said, can you imagine in this day and age, if you and I were sitting around having coffee like this? And I said, you know what, Matt? a great idea. Let's take a really, really highly flammable <laughs> substance, run it every under every public street in America, bring it up inside people's houses, and invite everybody, including children, to light it with a match. Would that be a good plan? <laughs> you would never do that today, right? So we have uh, a certain um, approach to life that we need to be frank about, right? Life is not without risk. There is risk associated with, with everything. Yeah. Our job and government's job and DEP's job is to make sure that that risk is appropriately managed so our citizens are kept safe. Absolutely, full stop. Um, one of the reasons that we have tremendous assets in Pennsylvania is our water resources and our ability to have good potable water. It is because we have beautiful environmental surround so that people who think about bringing like an Amazon or a corporate headquarters here want to have great quality of life for their people. They don't want to live in a horrible, polluted, awful place. They want to live in a beautiful, pristine, gorgeous place where they can go hiking 15 minutes from their house, right? Those are all important things to business generation. But unless you have that map, unless you have a comprehensive approach that includes not just energy, not just pipelines, not just manufacturing, but all the supply that's going to come into that, the PASHI system, the workforce system, we could do so much more with the PASHI universities, which are struggling, right? They're struggling right now to bring enough students in simply because of the demographic shifts in our population. There are incredible trade schools that are struggling against the, the tide of people who say, no, I want my kid to go to college, yeah. college, college. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we use all those empty slots in the PASHI schools across the Commonwealth to do two-year certificate things, have them partner with the trade schools. You could yeah. do the training one place or the other. No one would know the difference. You get a college degree and you get a job so that rather than having to go into debt to go to college, you go to work for a couple of years, earn some money, and then go to college and don't come out with debt hanging over your head that you'll never get. These are ways of connecting the dots and showing true leadership that just simply don't exist. And as I said before, it's all ripe for the taking. It's all sitting there, you know? We have incredible universities and university assets that are doing mind-blowing work in things like traffic controls and, and, and autonomous vehicles and all of these things. Nobody is harnessing that kind yeah. of activity. And the so, map would help do that. So, uh, Laura, we've talked a bit about your contrast with Governor Wolf. Uh, what about the others that uh, are running for the Republican nomination right now? You, you know, Scott Wagner, uh, Paul Mango, uh, Mike Terzai. How do you contrast yourself with them, and why do you think you would be the better Republican nominee to take on Tom Wolf and then lead the, lead our state? Um, I think it basically comes down to leadership style and demonstrated ability to deliver. And I answer that in the following way: 
I think, in my experience only, as human beings, that when you need to lead a large group of people with very diverse interests, that punching them in the face and calling them names and insulting them and yelling at them is not the most effective way to lead them. I think that we've seen from Governor Wolf that a leadership style that is derived from an experience of telling people what to do and they'll do it simply because you told them to do yeah. it is also not the best way to do it. I think if you look at somebody, and I think you know, if you want to see leadership style in action of existing leaders, you're seeing it, okay? Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at somebody... Yeah, actually in Tom Wolf, we've had them all. We had very liberal Tom Wolf with his $4.5 billion tax increase, more than the other 49 states. Then the second year we had angry Tom Wolf, where he came and reprimanded the General Assembly. Again, got nothing. And then this year was kind of the passive uh, Tom Wolf. Uh, but in all of these... None of them work. Yeah, none of, <laughs> none of them work. None of them work. I think it does get back to the leadership deficit. Uh, that we're experiencing in the governor's mansion. Someone who promised to be a different kind of governor. Uh, well, he's uh, been a different kind and demonstrated that he can't do it uh, no matter what style approach uh, he takes. So, Laura, as you uh, are traversing the state, uh, I know that you've been at it just for a couple weeks now. Um, what are you hearing? What are folks saying that, uh, you know, who you're taking your message to? So what the reason I ran is because I believed in my heart that the people of Pennsylvania wanted what I wanted as a citizen, and that is people who would get things done, that wouldn't worry about their next election or what was going to get them elected, that wanted nothing other than the ability to get things done for the people of Pennsylvania. And I am finding that in spades. And I think when people talk to me about the things that I've done, whether it is in you know, creating, we created in, in Pittsburgh 2,000 paid jobs for summer kids. People were just talking about that. We did that. Um, people, you know, we went in and we did um, um, strengthening communities where, we, where we, we brought financing into underserved communities. All of these things again and again and again, we were able to deliver on things. And if you look at, at Pittsburgh and the rise of Pittsburgh and the great change in Pittsburgh, all of those things that I was privileged to participate in, I think that people are looking for somebody who has a demonstrated ability to say, come around this table. The only requirement to come around this table is a person of good faith who wants to do right by the people of this Commonwealth, will roll up their sleeves and work hard to achieve that and deliver for the people. That is the only reason I am doing this. I was perfectly happy <laughs> living my life and doing my job and helping people in the way that I did. And I couldn't stand the sound of my own voice looking for, begging for that person who would come and simply bring together these unbelievable pieces and the promise of this state for its people. And finally, I thought, all right, are you a doer or are you a talker, right? You say it's all about doing. And um, Elsie Hillman, who was, was a great mentor mm -hmm. to a generation of women in Pittsburgh, just an incredible human being. And she used to say to us all the time when she would, you know, gather us in her living room and, you know, encourage us to go out in the world and change the world. And she would say, you know, some people go into politics because they want to be something. Some people go into politics because they want to do something. Doing's better. And so all of the Elsie Hillmanites, right, have this little thing that says doing's better. And doing is better. And that is what we need more of. And, you know, when I look at the other people that are in the race, if I thought somebody could do it better, mm -hmm. I'd let them do it. But when I didn't see that, I thought it's time for the citizens and for the people of this Commonwealth 
to take back what is theirs and to say, we are gonna run this place like we run our families because we know what's best for us. We just want the government to help us live our lives the way you know we want to live them. And um, it's time for that. Well, so Laura, obviously it, took, it takes a lot of money to run. Uh, and two of your uh, competitors in this primary have said that they'll spend upwards of $10 million each uh, into this. Uh, that's what Tom Wolf uh, threw into his campaign that really, uh, in a way, set him above and apart the others uh, who seem to have a more, uh, an easier path uh, to the nomination for the Democrats. Uh, how, how do you counter what looks like, you know, probably at least 20 million coming from Mango and Wagner? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I've, we'll see, right? Right, uh, right, right. Uh, but but is, do you see that that's a, that, that that is going to be a challenge for you? I think that politics is expensive, right? So I'm not under any illusion that politics is not expensive. And I think there is a significant fundraising enterprise that needs to be done, and I don't worry about yeah. that. But I do think this. I think the idea that politicians try to throw up there that you have to have $10 million of your own money for the privilege of representing the citizens of Pennsylvania. I disagree with that, and I'm willing to fight that, and I'm willing to go to the people of Pennsylvania and say, really, do you want that to be the truth? Because if you want that to be the truth, that's pretty much what these guys say the truth is. If what you want is somebody to serve you, then do you have to be part of the funding solution? Yeah, you do, right? But then do we have to get elected? Yeah, we do. But I will take on all day long the idea that the office of governor is for sale to the highest bidder. It belongs to the people, and I have absolute faith in the people of this Commonwealth to come to the fore and get the right person in that chair. Absolute faith. Well, I wish you well in this endeavor, Laura, and I really appreciate your taking time to sit down uh, with me on Brews and Views, uh, enjoying a cup of coffee, and hopefully we'll be talking again. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks for the time. All right. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E.